Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We hope you enjoy our journey through the book of Acts, exploring the many powerful actions of Jesus Christ as he continues to move and teach us through his apostles by his Holy Spirit, empowering the explosion of the church to expand from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, which is you and me right here and right now, where we move from spectators to participants and join with Paul in preaching the gospel with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's now join Pastor Jordan Moody in our new series, Acts, The Movement Begins. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. The title is uh, Grace for Them today, Grace for Them. And uh, let's look at uh, this first section here in Acts 9, verse 32. It's continuing our series in Acts, and last week we were... In Saul's conversion, as Saul was converted on the road to Damascus, he escapes out a wall and a window there and lowered down by a basket. It's exciting. And then he escapes from Jerusalem. He heads to Tarsus because everyone's trying to kill him. (laughs) And then Saul's kind of steps off the scene. And now the focus goes back to Peter. So today, as Saul's kind of running and and getting away, we're going to be looking at Peter today. Acts 9 says, verse 32, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, He came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. That's the first scene. The second scene is Dorcas or Tabitha. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when, she had, uh, when they had washed her, they laid her in an, in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose. And went with them. And when he had arrived, they took him to an upper room. All the windows stood beside him, weeping. Uh, Widows stood beside them, weeping, and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened up her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling all the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all of Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon the Tanner. We're going to just keep reading. And I just want you to not, I'll, I'll try to clue us in as what's going on. As it's a, the scene now shifts to a place of Caesarea. So we were in Lydda. Then it goes to kind of Joppa here and then near that area. And then it goes up north here to Caesarea. Acts 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, 
He stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now, send to Joppa and bring one uh, Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with a different Simon, Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So Cornelius sends a group to go fetch Peter down in Joppa. So now, the scene, the camera, it goes to Joppa. Verse 9, the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter, in Joppa at the Simon the Tanner's house, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. Don't we all, right? But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, or like this vision state, and saw the heavens opened, something like a great sheet descending, being let down by all four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals, and reptiles, and birds of the air. It's a very strange vision. Verse 13, and there came a voice to him saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. These kind of unclean animals that they were not allowed to eat, non-kosher, this kind of thing. Verse 15, and the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Then verse 17. Now Peter was inwardly perplexed, just confused about what he just saw, as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made an inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright, God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be in, uh, in to be his guests. The next day he, he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied by them. So now they're headed from Joppa up north to Caesarea. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and he had called together his relatives and close friends. He gets a whole group together. And then verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, no, 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 stand up. I too am a man. Basically, I am a human just like you. Verse 27. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to him, You yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation or people like you. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. 
Verse 30 says, And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all about you have commanded to the Lord. Then I'll read the next two verses. Verse 34 and 35 says, so Peter opened up his mouth and said, so he began to preach, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Hear that? But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Let us pray. Father, we come before you. We are so thankful for this word and your scripture and your truth. Would you convict our hearts today? Transform our hearts and our minds. Lord, Point us in the way that you would have us to go from this. Allow this scripture to reorient where we have been, where we're going. Lord, let us be changed today by these truths. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for these people. And I just ask that you'd continue to guide and direct in our church. In all the things that are going on in our midst and all the people that are here present, Lord, we thank you for that. Ask God you continue to move and work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so hopefully you guys were able to follow some of that. Like I said, there's several scenes. It's a whole storyline that follows. There's a variety of things setting in all and at once. And so I hope to try to bring clarity to you today to be able to understand what in the world this vision Peter has and this story has for us today. So I grew up here in the Monadnock region and um, grew up in, in Dublin. And uh, as a kid, I got to kind of Live the, the good old life of being a, a carefree kid in rural New Hampshire, getting on his bike and just riding wherever. And so I would ride my bike up to Dublin, and um, my family helped uh, start the school Dublin Christian Academy. And so in the summers, uh, all 200 acres of land up there or whatever in Dublin, we had free roam, uh, free, we could freely roam all around the land as a kid. And so a lot of the neighborhood uh, hooligans uh, would all meet there during the summertime. And we'd bike up to Dublin and we would ride all around and camp and fish, do all kinds of things. That was just the greatest life, now looking back on it. But I can remember in our little, as we call it, the biker gang, um, in my little biker gang, I can remember the day when my really good friend um, got a new bike. And it was one of those situations where, as a kid, you're not always excited for that person to get something that's a whole lot better than yours, you know? I can still remember the feeling of that sweet, like, matte black. It was a diamond back bike. And back then, diamond backs were kind of cool and expensive and really nice. And he got a really light, just beautiful thing. And I, I had a great bike, not going to complain, but it wasn't a matte black, beautiful black diamond, uh, diamond back bike, uh, 21 speeds or whatever, you know, we were just young. And I can remember not being thrilled for him and excited because inside I was a little more jealous and annoyed and frustrated that I didn't have that kind of a bike. Do you know what that feels like, you know? You adults, of course, don't know what that feels like. That's just for children and young people, right? I can remember at school, I told my, some of my ninth graders this this morning, but at school I can remember studying, working hard, trying to do my best, but at best, I know you might be shocked to hear this, but I was a, a B student probably, you know. I had friends who were A students and they barely even had to try. Do you know those people? 
Some of you are in this room and we are frustrated with you, right? You, you don't really study. You fool around and goof off. You come in and you just like, oh yeah, you whip out your textbook five minutes before the test, memorize all the stuff, bang, bang, bang. You pull out an A minus, right? And I'm just, ah, it drives me nuts, right? Because I worked all week or all night and I get a B or a B minus or whatever, you know. And so some of you, it's this one of those things. And I can't always remember my that feeling of like, wow, I didn't even study and I got an A. I'm like, great for you, right? I hate you, you know? That's how I feel <laughs> internally. When it didn't say that, it's your feelings. But I would say, it's not fair, right, to me. It wasn't fair. It wasn't fair my friend got a bike and it was way nicer than anything I ever had. It wasn't fair. These guys just seem to get everything that they want. They didn't try that hard and yet they got... And then it would happen in sports a lot, too, I'd say, too. I mean, uh, ah, boy, we won't go into that because those were some dark moments in my life. <laughs> that referee is blind, right? They always see everything everyone else does. They, I mean, sorry, they, they never see anything else that everyone else does. They always see the things that I do. When I trip the guy or pull his jersey, they see that. But they didn't see all the times he was elbowing me half the time the other, right? I mean, it's always that way. The, the ref is partial or whatever. There's a giant conspiracy. That's what I thought. It wasn't fair, right? And I've stumbled this week upon a, upon a, um, a parable. They don't really have time to get into all the details of it. I just want it to set the scene because I think it will help to, I think it will make sense at the end. Does that, does that make sense here? I think you'll, you'll understand w where this is coming from. It's in Matthew chapter 20. I don't even think I told the booth I was going to go into this, but... Matthew 20, verse 1, this is the laborers in the vineyard parable. Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Do you guys know this one? It's maybe a little bit of a lesser known one, but, you know, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarii a day, he sent them into the vineyard. Going out about the third, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I'll give you. So they went. Going out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he went and did the same. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand idle here? And he said to them, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning from the last up until the first. And when those he hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarii. And when those who hired first, they thought they would receive more, because they worked more. But each of them received a denarii. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. Shocking, right? We never grumble. Saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree to work for a denarii? Take what belongs to you, and, I ch uh, uh, and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? You could say this. Or do you begrudge my grace? So the last will be first and the first will be last. I always use that phrase when I cut in lines, right? The last, it works really well. It's totally taken out of context as well, right? But... That idea, do you begrudge my generosity? That, that, that parable means many things, but I'm hoping it just sets the scene. Because today, in, in one way, shape, or form, this is a, a lesson in grace. It's a study in grace. At least that's what I drew out from it, and I'm hoping to share with you today. 
Holy Spirit here is moving from the book of Acts as we see it going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria down to Africa as it started and now specifically in chapter 10, which we are going to look at this week, but we're also looking at chapter 10 next week. We're going to see the gospel go forth to the Gentiles, those people. And for the Jews, I would imagine there are times when this seemed not fair. Perhaps many of us have come to a place in our own lives when we look at those who seem to be deserving of punishment and those of us who've lived a much better life than that other person, and they seem to receive the grace of God, we might have trouble celebrating with them. Perhaps we've fallen into our own selfish, self-righteous traps of assuming of ourselves to be better than someone else based on some arbitrary outward standard, rather than re- realizing that we are all sinners. We feel as if we maybe have sinned maybe just less than that other guy or that neighbor. So we're the first ones so often to forget about the grace of God because we don't really need it as much as that other guy. (laughs) At least we're not like them, we might say. Those people, right? And I love the way D.L. Moody puts it. He says, I saw this quote online today, this week. It says, I'm glad we are saved by grace and not by works. Because I don't want to sit in heaven and listen to everybody brag on for eternity about how they got there. (laughs) And I just think that's so fitting, is it not? That's how we do it. That's how we are. We treat one group over another group better than the other, right? And I understand this puts me in an awkward position because of my comments last week in the sermon about Massachusetts people. I apologize publicly. I may have, we're just going to say, I may have alluded to the idea that New Hampshire people are better than Massachusetts people? It's as you will. I don't want to get your emails or anything. No. It was a joke. We were joking about that idea. We, here at Hope, we welcome Massachusetts and New Hampshire people, okay? Everybody is welcome here, right? No, but the point is in that silly, funny way. Obviously, that's ridiculous. But there are very serious ways in which we do that same thing, right? And we assume ourselves better. And we take these arbitrary ways in order to prop ourselves up and say, well, Look at, we can boast in who we are, in our works, and what we look like, and what we've done this class over that class, when really, we are saved by grace, not of works, unless anybody would go around boasting all the time, thinking they deserve it. It's a Reliant K song. It says, the beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair, right? And I love that. But here, we have these short little pericopes, or these little scenes here in Acts 9, leading up to Acts 10, and it's telling us these amazing, miraculous stories. We don't have time to get into all the details, but the first one is about uh, an Aeneas here, and it's rise and make your bed, and the word rise or, or get up, stand up, rise up, is mentioned in Acts 9 and 10, like eight to nine different times. It's over and over and over. You'll notice the word rose or he arise or get up or stand up. This is mentioned many times, and so the first time is here, rise and make your bed. So Peter is stepping onto the scene, and unless you have forgotten, Peter is one of those founding apostles, and God is working mightily in him. He's almost been given the keys to unlock the gospel message for the early church and for the Gentiles as well now, which he's uh, a little taken aback at at first. But this is a dramatic display of Jesus' power over disease and sickness. Here, this man who's been paralyzed, he's been sick, he's been hurt, he's been bedridden for eight years. 
And I love this, the the connection we see between Peter, that Peter is working in and through the Holy Spirit, which is the the message and the teachings and the power of Jesus, because Jesus is not dead, he's alive, and now Jesus is working through his spirit, through the apostles, into the church. That's what's being demonstrated for us today, that unless we think Jesus is no longer here and he is dead, he is alive, and he's very much alive because he's working here and through Peter. And we see that because there's connections between Peter and Jesus some of you might be familiar with these stories, but do you remember in Jesus when the, they, they lower that guy down through the roof? You know, I've always loved that story. They pull apart the thing and they lower the, the person down through the roof. So the command that Jesus has used there, the command to make your bed is akin to Jesus telling a man that was lowered down to the roof. He says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home, right? Do you know that one? It's from Luke 5 and Matt, Matthew 9. And so Peter hears the instrument of healing, but Jesus is the source. It's not about Peter. It's about Jesus and the effects that the power of Jesus has on our community. And I just love this one and Tabitha's story. There's something about the simplicity of it when you read it. There's no fanfare. (laughs) There's no theatrics. You could even say there's no emotionalism. (laughs) It is simply Peter. He walks up, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. That's it. Boom. Boom. The power of Jesus immediately comes upon him. God's grace pours out into this situation. And it's like from that, there's a demonstration and a sign of Jesus' power. And immediately the entire area is filled with God's grace, you could say. And the kingdom of God opens its gates wide open to those who are sick and paralyzed and need help. And those who need their hearts uh, purified and sanctified from sin. And so the next one is another demonstration of that, maybe in a more dramatic way. Tabitha, arise. Jesus' dramatic display over death. It's displayed here through, through Tabitha. She is, if we could say, for lack of a better term, she is like a, a threads of hope, okay? She, as we supply clothing here, she's supplying clothing and needs for people in the area. Uh, she, many commentators, as I read, probably think she likely is a widow, and she ministered most definitely to widows, because the people that are mourning at her death and at her bedside are widows. And, and it doesn't mention other family members except others in the community. Everybody knew who she was. But she got sick and died. Frankly, not a very rare thing. It's been very common. Like, what's the difference here? Well, the difference is Peter and the power of God is here and working this out in a demonstration. And we see this connection between Peter and the power of Jesus flowing through him because we see Jesus being represented here. There's this another story of Jesus healing Jairus' daughter. Do you remember that one? Jairus' daughter, and he says to her, little girl, I say, arise. And here in this situation, he says to Tabitha, arise. Almost the same words. And in fact, if you look at the Aramaic in the original, what they're saying, the words Talitha koum. Little girl, I say, arise, which sounds a whole lot like Tabitha Kaum. And so there's one letter difference. And so there's just this unique characteristic here of, of Jesus saying, yes, I am working, I am alive. The power of God is here through the Holy Spirit. And the church is growing, and this is, this is a beautiful thing. It's, it's Lazarus, get out. Tabitha, get up. Jairus, little girl, stand up. You know, this idea. And the kingdom of God door just opens up. And this is a beautifully descriptive passage for those of us to be reminded that God's power even speaks into the most difficult and most impossible things in our lives. Whether we find healing in this life, we know through Christ and through his power, we will find healing in the next. And so the power, this 
passage, these two passages describe to us how Jesus has power over disease and over death, and he is working in his church, and it's a beautiful testimony. Then we see these storylines kind of prop up Peter in the sense that, okay, what's about to happen? God is going to work even mightily through this Peter, and what is he going to continue to do? Because there's a radical shift about to happen. To us, when we read it, it maybe doesn't feel as radical. To Peter, as you notice, he's, he's received a, a, a vision, and he's also said, you go down there, you go here, and you do that without hesitation, as the angel said. There's a variety of things in which this is a challenging, radical shift in the gospel message and the early church that's about to occur. Why? Well, Cornelius, first of all, notice the, who he is. So Cornelius is a guy, he's a, he's a Roman. Jews didn't like them. They were the occupying force at that time. He's wealthy. He's a Gentile. He's a non-Jew. He's, he is favorable to Judaism and the religion. It says he's a God-fearer. And he is a devout man. He gave to uh, the locals there, likely the synagogues and the people that were worshiping. He, he gave greatly to them. Yet he was seeking God. He was a religious man, but he wasn't regenerate yet. And so there would have been a lot of stigmas and prejudice about this. And rightfully so, you could say. And so Caesarea uh, is the location that's mentioned here, verse uh, chapter 10. And uh, Peter, Cornelius has a vision here where he's supposed to send some soldiers to Simon the Tanner's house. And you'll see here on Caesarea, I think I have a map. I don't know if we have a map of the location. I know you guys can't read this, but the green line at the very bottom was where we were the week before, the last couple of weeks. If you look at the red line, at least maybe some of you can read that, the red line is, is Peter's traveling. And those farthest section out there is Joppa. And that is where Tabitha is raised and Peter receives his vision. And if you follow the red line to the top of the screen, that's Caesarea, Caesarea. And so those two locations are what we're talking about today. Lydda is where the uh, Aeneas was healed and all of that. And then Tabitha and Peter and then Caesarea to the top. So that's kind of the location we're looking at. Caesarea is a city. It was Hellenistic in design and style. It was named for Caesar. It was a Roman city, almost like a, it was meant to be like a Rome, uh, a mini Rome. There were theaters, aqueducts, bathhouses. It was a huge man-made port. It was a mighty wealthy city. There were temples. It was a Roman, Roman, Roman city. Herod the Great made the Hippodrome there that could seat 13,000 people to watch the Super Bowl, which was essentially like just people running around in a corner or chariot races, you know, like Ben-Hur. That's essentially what it was. Um, the Jewish population there despised the city and the Romans for good reason. It was a pagan place. And it was viewed as a cesspool, you could say, a sin city, as we might say. I think people say that, right? And so Cornelius has a vision to go down to Joppa in the south and grab Simon, who's at Simon the Tanner's house. And when we went to Israel, we got to see what that looks like. So I think I have a slide over this next one. It's kind of this area of, that's overlooking the Mediterranean. And there's a beautiful picture here of this is the city of Joppa. It looks out. This is probably some of the scenes that they would have been looking like. If you go to the next picture... Um, this one is looking out on the, out of the Mediterranean Sea there from the city of Joppa or Tel Aviv, very near there. And the, this is what it possibly could have looked like for Peter to be on top of that house, to look out and to see a vision. And if you keep going, 
There's a, a Simon the Tanner's house. So this is a picture of Simon the Tanner's house, at least what tradition has passed down to us of what Simon the Tanner's house actually looks like, the location of it that has, passed, like I said, been passed down for centuries. And that is right there in Joppa, modern Jaffa, or uh, Tel Aviv is very near there in all that a- area that where we were. And so we got to see that and visit that. But the Tanner, what is a Tanner? A tanner was someone who was dealing with uh, animal products and, and making leather. And so in Jewish culture, a tanner would have been someone who would have been ritually unclean on a, a majority of the time. A tanner was a lower class person. They were someone that was not really uh, someone you would even associate or assume that they would have been in a way. So the fact that Peter's at this house is unique in the first place. Uh, because there was quite a process that would have been going into making these hides and tanning leather. And so it would have been someone who, like I said, was regularly ceremonially unclean in the eyes of most Jewish people. But Peter finds himself at the tanner's house. He goes up onto the top of that, vi- uh, of that time as he's waiting for food to be prepared. And he's hungry. And we all know what it's like to be hangry, okay? He, he's in that place, okay? But then he receives this incredible, uh, you could say, radical vision an extraordinary radical vision and there's a there's a painting back from the old from the 1600s if you want to show that i think i have a, a picture of this old painting um, it's an Italian painter, I can't remember his name, uh, and it's, it's this uh, painting from the 1600s of, of their depiction of this event. And it's this idea of the sheet, as you can see, being lowered down from heaven, and in that sheet that is kind of uh, from the north, south, east, and west, depicting this global nature of this coming down, and all sorts of strange animals are in that. And, and uh, God, or the angel here, speaks to him. God says, rise, Peter, get up, rise kill and eat, right? And so the act is not that idea of killing and eating. That's probably what was happening down below. But the idea is now these are animals that were not kosher. If you were to look in Leviticus chapter 11, you would see it all sorts of lists from the Old Testament law that says you do not eat this, you do not eat that, you eat that. And uh, there's common animals and unclean animals and then animals that were uh, good and, and healthy, the ones that they were supposed to choose according to God's law. And so here, there's this dramatic display, you could say, in this, in this vision for Peter of Jesus' power, yes, over disease and death, but now over discrimination and favoritism and partiality. It's now like God is saying, we are pushing that aside, for that has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Jesus Christ came, he fulfills that law, it is no longer needed for who I want you to be now. I am starting the church, which is now going to be throwing open the door for non-Jews alike, for the Greek, for the Jew, for, the, for people all over. This Gentile door is going wide open. The dam is about to break wide open. And so this is, a, this is an incredible passage. If you, if you were to look at like passages like Galatians, Galatians 1 and Romans 1, in Galatians 1, it says that Paul, speaking of this idea, says, he have called me by his grace, and he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach to him among the Gentiles. So Saul and Paul here is saying that I've been called to go out from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and go out to preach to the Gentile worlds, people like you and me. And then in Romans 1, Paul says, most famously, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You heard that verse. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what does he say? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. To everyone who believes. And what does that mean? Well, it's he says. 
to the Jew first, also to the Greek. To the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. To the Jew first, and also to those in Africa and in Asia and North America and to the world. Ephesians 3 says, this is the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with us. That might not sound as radical as it sounded to them when they were hearing it. This is a mystery. Gentiles, people who didn't get paid this favor and blessing from God early on, but now seem to be receiving the same result. Remember that? We talked about from that parable from Jesus. This is the mystery. Gentiles are fellow heirs with us, members of the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is now for them. What? This is the gospel. Acts 10, as he says here in the most poignant terms, Acts 10, verse 28, Peter says to the group at Cornelius' house, they've all gathered, he has friends, a bunch of Gentile people are there, a lot of unclean people. They're not supposed to associate with these people. And what does he say? And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone from another nation. But God, he says, has shown to me that I should not call any person common or unclean. An extraordinary radical statement. I'm trying to wrap my mind around this, and it's hard for us to grasp this because I don't know if we live in that same kind of stigma and atmosphere. I, I mean, I guess the one way you could describe it is what it potentially was like, and even in our own country between black and white, and when there are horrific laws of segregation and sorts of things where there's the colored bathroom, there's the white bathroom, there's the, um, the colored water fountain, and there's the white water fountain. It's just absolute ways of delineating between people who are made equal in the image of God. Here in a similar way, I would say it's maybe not the same thing because God did give laws to the Old Test in the Old Testament to the chosen nation of Israel to make them distinct. But God was seeking to make them distinct, not to be better. <laughs> For that nation was to be distinct and to be able to deliver the Messiah to the world and to be a light of the gospel of God's love for the nations. But they were chosen by God's grace, just like everyone else was chosen by God's grace. And the Bible speaks in many different places. Was Israel chosen because they were the mightiest nation on the face of the planet? <laughs> he says in Genesis, Abraham, get up and go. I'm going to make a nation out of you. And you know, so often I think that's how it is in our lives. <laughs> We think because we've received in the grace of God, because we go to church every Sunday, that we're better than everyone else. I think if we forget the grace of God upon our lives, we can easily push aside other people and call them common and unclean when that was us before God's grace. And so I think that is the message I'm trying to grab here because when you see what happens is Peter demonstrates this when he goes into Cornelius' home. What is this kind of final area? He says, rise, I too am a man. But Cornelius, just not knowing, he's just like, this is Peter. Words gotten around about Peter. Believe me, the whole area knows who Peter is. And he comes into Cornelius. Cornelius immediately gets down on his hands and he starts worshiping Peter. Peter's like, yeah, that's right. I'm an apostle, right? Look at what I just did to Tabitha and Aeneas. Look at me. Peter doesn't do that. Says, no, 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 get, get up, get up. I am a man just like you. I am a human just like you. We all need Jesus, you almost could hear him say. <laughs> and I've been told by God that I should not call any person common or unclean. And he preaches the gospel to them. This is something we're going to be looking at in much more detail next week. 
but he preaches a message almost, you could say, I'm trying to make this relevant for us, is almost like and the founders of our Constitution and the, and the Declaration of Independence, they, what did they write? It says, when we think of the United States here, right, we hold these truths to be self-evident that men are created equal. <laughs> they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among us are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This idea, <laughs> where does that come from? This idea that man, human beings can be created equal, that's an absurd idea. We find this biblically here in this, this presentation of this radical shift in thinking and viewing that Peter was about to see here shortly after. He is going to witness at the end of Acts 10, the Holy Spirit is going to fall upon that household and he is going to fill Gentile people like were Roman centurion like Cornelius. That that same Holy Spirit that came to Jerusalem to those God-fearing Jewish believers there in Jerusalem, that same Holy Spirit that came and fell uh, when Philip and those who went to Samaria, that it went to the Samaritans. Okay, I can get that because they're kind of half Jewish. But now, in Acts 10, the Holy Spirit is going to fall upon them? Do you get the feeling? That it's so easy for us to just see, well, it's all the same because we're seeing it in this way. This was a radical statement. This is a radical event. And I think the application, if I want to try to bring this to a close, is obviously, as I've alluded to, the master, that laborers in the vineyard concept. God's grace is given to those who worked at the beginning there and carried that to the end, but God's grace is given to those who sneak in the back door, you could say, because God's grace goes all. God's grace goes to the guy on the cross, <laughs> the thief on the cross. A beautiful statement of God's grace for all of us. We don't deserve it in the first place, so how dare we say that others don't deserve it either. Here we see, I think, for me, is in this idea that Peter, I, I wanna kinda use this as a final illustration. This Peter, to me, is, is demonstrating in a similar way. I think there are some, and I don't think I have to try very hard for this in a sense, when you read the passage, you get a sense that Peter is kind of acting out the story of Jonah. And what I mean by that is when you, when you read Peter's story here, when he has this vision, where is it located? It's located in Joppa. Joppa. And if you were to read Jonah 1.1, 1, 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, and saying, arise. <laughs> that word arise is just over and over. Go to Nineveh, those people you hate and kill, try to kill you, these Assyrians, these evil, wicked people. Go to that place in Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Hey, go be a missionary to people you don't like. And then Jonah says, yes, Lord, right? <laughs> now, Jonah rose to flee from Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord, and where did he go? He went down to Joppa. And in Joppa, he found a ship to Tarshish. He paid the fare, went down to it to go to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord, and the rest is history. Right? The story he runs in the belly of the whale, and at the very end in Acts 4, verse 4, God questions him and says, do you do well to be angry? Because what? God works his mighty grace over the people of Israel, uh, of Assyria and Nineveh there, and they all radically have this giant revival, and Jonah is angry about it. <laughs> I thought you were going to destroy these people. I thought they were going to get what they deserve, is what Jonah's thinking. But God has the opposite effect. <laughs> he pours his grace on those people. And God says, do you do well to be angry? 
preached on the series of Jonah a couple years ago, and I went back and looked at a few of my notes, and it just reminded me of this depiction that God shows no partiality here. Now, we're not talking about an affirmation of sin or truth and false teaching. The Bible speaks very clearly that we're to be discerning, but it doesn't mean we discriminate. We are to be discerning about that is right and that is wrong. This is true and that is not. This is right doctrine and that is false doctrine. That is not discrimination, as we might say. That is not partiality and favoritism shown in arbitrary ways and self-serving, self-righteous, pride-filled manners. No, no, that's not what we're talking about here today. What we're talking about is our own sinful self-righteousness as it seeks that, yes, we're the ones who deserve God's grace, not them. Look at it, it says, is it, this, this quote I have it, uh, is what I wrote when I preached to Jonah. It says, it's easy to love God when he forgives us, but how about when he forgives our enemies? How about when life doesn't always turn out the way we expected it to? Do we love God then? Or do we just love God when we get our own way? Mary Cheneau says this, I'm reading prophets. One can get caught up in God's justice, retribution, death, and destruction. But Jonah in the Old Testament stands out as a reminder that God is also merciful. And that sometimes he is merciful to the people that we hate most. The ones who are, in our minds, least deserving in our opinion. And because of that dysfunctional ending to Jonah, we cannot move right into Micah without experiencing some of that tension. We pause as we ponder. We might find ourselves even trying to answer God's unanswered questions at the end of Jonah for ourselves. The book of Jonah forces us, as I wrote here, to grapple with the mission of God, especially as it relates to the extension of his mercy to the grace and grace to all nations to the ends of the earth. To Israel, the grace goes to Assyria, to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to Nineveh, to the United States of America, but also to Russia and China, and the gospel will go to North Korea as well. God desires to see that all would come to repentance. We might call, you could say he might call you to reach even out, as some go, to these foreign places, to those, to reach them with mercy and God's grace that he showed you in the first place. And one commentary says that the primary theme of Jonah is that God's compassion is boundless and not limited to just us, but it's also available for them. Grace for them. I, for one, am thankful that God's grace is not just set apart for a particular group of people who have managed to climb the ladder high enough to deserve it, I am thankful that God's grace comes to people like me and people like you. And there isn't a person in this place hearing this sound of my voice who is too far gone, who is too far away to seek forgiveness from God, to repent from your sins and turn to him because we serve an abundantly pardoning God. He is gracious and merciful and he offers you forgiveness. And as you come to him, He gives you life. And in that life, we find peace. We find an abundance of joy and a reason to live and get up in the morning, a purpose for your life because God has called you to share that good news and that mercy with someone that he's placed on your heart and mind. And who is that person that we can be 
like Peter and go and just share the gospel. God shows no partiality, but God raised him up on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God and his witnesses. He rose from the dead, Peter says. What an amazing message. And then Peter says this in Acts 10, verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness, that is Jesus, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ that I hope you receive today. Let us pray. Father, we come before you. We honor you. We glorify you and your name. God, I ask that you would make this humble, feeble attempt of your word delivered to these people today mean something, impact someone today. God, help it to transform our hearts and our lives. Lord, help it to be something in which we look differently at people now. We look differently through your eyes, God. We see people through the lens of faith. We see people made in your image. We don't see people living up to my personal standard, but God, we see people made in your image in whom you love. Help us to have a burden for those, even those who are hard to love. God, would you help us? Humble us. Empower and equip us to do that, God, because we cannot do this on our own. We need you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray.